Hello and welcome. UVA Speaks is a podcast of Lifetime Learning, a division of the Office of Engagement at the University of Virginia. Lifetime Learning brings the knowledge and expertise of UVA's faculty to the university's alumni, friends, and families. My name is Susan Lynch, and I am the Associate Director of Lifetime Learning at the University of Virginia's Office of Engagement. This podcast features Lauren Dubois, the John L. Now III Bicentennial Professor of History and Principles of Democracy in the Corporate Department of History and co-director for academic affairs of the Democracy Initiative at the University of Virginia. Professor Dubois is a specialist on the history of culture of the Atlantic world and studies the Caribbean with particular interest in Haiti. He has authored seven books, including A Colony of Citizens, Revolution and Slave Emancipation in the French Caribbean from 1787 to 1804, which won the Frederick Douglass Prize, and The Haiti, The Aftershocks of History, which was a New York Times notable book of the year. In this podcast, Professor Dubois will speak to us about Haiti and how to connect the country's past to the current uncertainty following the assassination of the president in July and the subsequent earthquake and tropical storms that have made an already difficult and uncertain situation even more so for the people of Haiti. So thank you, Professor Dubois, for being here today and sharing some context and understanding of the country and the people of Haiti. So why is it important to look to the longer history of Haiti as we think about the current political and humanitarian crises in the country and how to approach it? Thanks, first of all, for having me. It's, it's great to be here and to be speaking to your audience. Um, I think I, I do feel like it's really important at moments like this to step back and try to understand the historical context or the, the deep history, partly because that's the only way to get a sense of the, the structures at work here and what the, the political crisis of the moment, um, where that comes from, essentially. Um, and, and some of it's just that these political crises, I think, uh, when you certainly encounter them, maybe for the first time or or kind of occasionally um, can sometimes seem a little bit just hard to understand, hard to understand this impasse. Um, And and there really is, I think, a deep political impasse in Haiti. um, And that impasse has been enduring, has has long historical roots. And at the same time, the important thing is that Haiti's history in relationship to other countries has always been a very complicated one, a very intricately linked one. And the U.S. and Haiti's histories have been intertwined, really, from the beginning of, of both countries. And so as, as people in the U.S. who are engaging with Haiti or thinking about Haiti, I also think we, we have a responsibility to understand that history, that, that Haiti is not really elsewhere. It's actually a place that's been very connected. And there's so many places of connection that we could mention. Um, so obviously Haiti and the United States, they were the first two independent nations in the Americas, the first two anti-colonial revolutions um, intertwined in that respect in the, in the late 18th century. And at the same time, they emerged in very different ways in the sense that Haiti of, of, was a revolution that was led by enslaved people. It was a revolution that, that over, overthrew French colonial rule, but at the same time, it also overthrew the slavery, slavery and the plantation system. Um, And the early leaders, uh, most of the early leaders of of early Haiti, in fact, had been enslaved themselves. Um, So you have a huge contrast, obviously, to to the United States. And of course, that 
story of Haiti's emergence creates a lot of problems for other people, right? That Haiti is a threat in very clear ways to a world at the time in which basically every other dominant power in the world is, is somehow connected to the, to the slave system. All the European countries have slavery, the United States, obviously, Latin American countries as well. So you do have this emergence. And ever since then, in a certain way, Haiti's, uh, Haiti is a small country. It is not a country with you know, a lot of power to exert outside its, its realms. Um, it's had a lot of things imposed on it from outside. And yet symbolically, Haiti has loomed extremely large uh, in many people's imagination. It was an inspiration to many African-Americans as a place of, of liberty and freedom. It was a, a worrisome example for people who, who didn't want to abolish slavery. Uh, it's also just been culturally extremely generative space and Haitian culture is you know, renowned and impactful in different ways. So it's, so, so it's, it's bigger in a way than, uh, than maybe you might think sort of looking at the geography, I guess it's bigger symbolically, culturally, historically, and, and politically. Um, so maybe that's a beginning of an answer. Okay, great. Great. And, and um, here's another question that can broad bring that out a little bit more. Can you offer our listeners some guideposts for understanding Haitian history from its founding in 1804 to the present? Mm-hmm. So just going, going back a little bit, the, the Haitian Revolution itself really begins in 1791, um, a few years after the French Revolution. It begins in Paris and, and is intertwined with the French Revolution in important ways. Um, and in many ways, the independence of Haiti in 1804 is actually the result of Napoleon Bonaparte deciding to go back on things that happened during the French Revolution, because during the French Revolution and the Haitian Revolution, slavery was actually abolished by France um, as a result of events in Haiti. So France is actually the first nation to abolish slavery, but then they kind of pulled back from that. Napoleon tried to reestablish slavery, and then Haiti uh, defended itself, basically protected itself from that decision, chose independence uh, in order to preserve freedom. And that's why Haiti was actually the first, can be considered the first country to permanently abolish slavery in the world. Um, It's an important marker. After 1804, Haiti uh, is very isolated diplomatically. Most countries refuse to recognize its independence and Paris in particular, France in particular, refuses to essentially acknowledge that Haiti is an independent country, continue to consider it a French colony that they're gonna reconquer. And it's only in 1825 that France recognizes Haitian independence, but but they do so, they levy a a kind of punitive uh, indemnity on Haiti. So the Haitian government agrees to pay money to France to indemnify the former slave owners uh, who lost property there. Uh, And this this is an important date because it creates a beginning of a debt cycle in Haiti that is very, has long lasting implications into the 20th century. Uh, So that's an important guidepost. At the same time, and this is something that I think many people would, would not expect necessarily that in the 19th century, Haiti's economy is quite successful. Haiti, Haitians turn away from sugarcane plantations, but they continue to cultivate coffee. They create an, a very thriving internal market system and agricultural system. Uh, the population increases massively, which is always a sign that you know the, there's a kind of economically healthy situation. And there's actually a lot of migrants who move to Haiti from other places, including African-Americans who move by the thousands, in fact, uh, as part of my immigration processes. Uh, but people move from Germany, people from, move from the Middle East, people move from other parts of the Caribbean. I say that just because it contrasts with our sense of Haiti in the 20th century as a place that mostly people tr- are leaving. 
so there's a there's a whole history of the 19th century that sometimes gets lost and I think is very important to understand. Uh, in the early 20th century, there's at the same time a series of political crises in the late 19th century, and the U.S. becomes increasingly interested in Haiti, as they do uh, Puerto Rico, Cuba. There's a kind of expansion into into uh, the Caribbean, and very specifically, if you look at a map of the Caribbean, you'll see that. There's a peninsula of Haiti that's right across from the eastern edge of Cuba, which is the kind of easiest route to get to Panama and to the to Central America. So when the U.S. Navy is thinking about strategically about their region, Haiti and Cuba become particularly important. Um, there's attempts to acquire parts of Haiti for coaling stations and so forth. All of that helps to lay the foundation. Then in 1915, the U.S. actually occupies Haiti. Uh, as they have, that they will do, they give this to the Dominican Republic the next year. There's been, you know, in 1898, the U.S. troops are in Cuba, Puerto Rico has taken over and remains the United States. So this is a, of a piece with larger Caribbean context. So in 1915, uh, there's been, there's been several years of political turmoil in Haiti. And in 1915, the, the sitting Haitian president is actually assassinated by a crowd um, after he has assass- had, he has killed some political prisoners who are who are his enemies, um, and this this is then uh, invoked as the United States sends in troops uh, to reestablish order. It's uh, under under Woodrow Wilson, um, and they send the Marines in uh, to Haiti in 1915. Initially, I th- initially seemingly with a kind of short term mission of just reestablishing sort of order in Port-au-Prince of protecting U.S. banks, etc. But this is actually the beginning of ultimately a 20 year long occupation, a major occupation of the country in which the United States eventually essentially takes over the the government, um, eventually dissolves the parliament because parliamentarians are are kind of resisting. And at first, the Haitian population, for the most part, at least in the city, does not resist this this arrival of U.S. troops and some even work closely with the United States. But then over the next couple of years, the occupation increasingly kind of sours. Um, there's the use of forced labor in rural areas by the U.S. Marines, a number of other things that end up triggering a, a kind of an uprising against the U.S. And in 1918-19, there's a quite, quite brutal war that happens in Haiti. This eventually leads to a congressional investigation in which many Haitians come and testify in front of Congress about war crimes in Haiti, um, becomes kind of a, an important political issue in the United States. Uh, the, the U.S. occupation then sort of changes and morphs, and, and but actually lasts all the way until 1934. Um, it's a history that is extremely present for Haitians. This is, you know, we're talking about people's grandparents. It's not that far away. Um, uh, and at the same time, something that, that very few Americans are aware of, including many Americans who do travel to Haiti. Um, so one of the things I've tried to do in my work in, in, in Haiti, the aftershocks of history, is just to tell the story of that. Um, in part because it's important for people to have a shared understanding of that. And, and that, of course, has, you know, created lots of complicated, I mean, it creates complicated feelings and, and so forth in Haiti, um, but also it created a lot of changes in, in the Haitian context that continue to this day. And in some ways, the U.S. since then have been very, very, very involved in Haitian finances and Haitian politics um, in lots of different ways. Um, and some of what emerges from that occupation are the structures that end up creating this, this long uh, dictatorship in Haiti in the 19, starting in the 1950s through the 80s, which is known as the Duvalier dictatorship. It's a father and son, Francois Duvalier, who's elected, but then changes the constitution so that he can stay in power as a dictator. And then his son uh, takes power in the 70s. Um, and that's a 30-year process that uh, has deep, of very negative consequences in Haiti, of course. 
that also is a period when many Haitians flee that dictatorship and you get the creation of a very large Haitian diaspora in the United States, which is a very important player today. Um, and then the, the, since then, that dictatorship's overthrown in 1986. Uh, but since then, you've had several decades of, of a very complicated political dynamic um, in, in, into, you know, in, in which we're still are in some ways, we're still in that phase where there's been moments of democratic um, uh, kind of formation and democratic elections, but also a lot of crises around the politics um, and still a very weak state in Haiti. Uh, in 2010, of course, there's this major earthquake and that I think most people will remember that's devastating in Haiti that kills hundreds of thousands of people. And, and that begins a, a long period of external aid and in, uh, involvement in Haiti as well, um, that in some ways has just ended. Um, there's a UN mission that was there until just a few years ago. Uh, so um, we're kind of in this space where all of those things are, are still present and shaping the context. Um, so I, I hope that provides some outlines. Obviously, there's, there's one can deepen different parts of that, but that's the broad outlines of it. Now, it's very interesting. Uh, there were many pieces of that that I, that I did not know or understand myself. So thank you so much. Um, one of the central terms that you use in talking about Haitian culture is the concept of counter plantation system. And can you define that for us and talk about why it matters? Yeah, and so this I, I find in talking to, to people interested in Haiti is, a, is a, often a very useful term because the, the question is sort of, well, what, what, is, what are the foundations of Haitian culture? I and mean, what, is, what is Haitian political culture and its, its culture about? Um, and uh, I think often it seems perplexing or people have difficulty grasping that. This is a term created or you know, coined by a, uh, Jean Casimir, who is a Haitian thinker. Um, I actually recently translated uh, his book into English. So because uh, most of his work is, is until now only been in French or in Creole. He was actually ambassador to the United States for, for a number of years as a professor at the University in Haiti and someone who taught at, at Duke with me a few years ago. Um, and what he was laying out with that term is essentially dealing with the fact that Haiti is founded by the majority of people who create the country are enslaved, were, were enslaved people. They're enslaved at the beginning of the revolution. Actually, the majority of them at the time of the revolution are also African born. So the plantation complex in Haiti was sort of so deadly that the death rates were so high that there was this constant importation from Africa. Um, almost as many as a million uh, enslaved Africans were brought to Haiti in the course of the 18th century, which is actually larger than this, the, the number brought to the United States. So just to give a sense of the size, um, but so you had this population, many of whom had been born and raised in Central or West Africa, who overthrew the, the, overthrow the plantation system. And they then begin to create something that's an alter alternative to that system. And the reason he uses the term counterplantation is that he argues it's, it's in many ways trying to be the antithesis of a plantation system. So you can sort of think, and this is useful when looking at Haitian culture, you can think about, well, what's the opposite of a plantation system, right? For those who are enslaved. The opposite is things like owning your own land so that you, you know, cultivate your own land for yourself rather than working on somebody else's land. Um, family, uh, family, extremely important in Haitian culture. Of course, in, in slavery, family is not respected. People, families are broken apart. Um, so kind of creating strong family linkages, spiritual life, cultural life, all these things that are essentially denied in the, the plantation context became central pillars but so much of it was really about creating a, a situation of, of autonomy and sort of sovereignty of communities, right? Um, the problem in Haiti is that that was, of course, went against the grain of not only the outside world, but actually the grain of many internal leaders 
even those so those who were some of them were ex-slaves themselves, uh, but who were leaders of the revolution, who became the political and economic leaders of Haiti. Most of them still thought that the plantation system was the really the only viable economic option for Haiti, right? That that even though there was no more slavery there, that 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 basically cultivating sugar and coffee for export was how the country was going to sort of thrive economically, what it needed to do. And so very early, it's you have an internal conflict about um, the nature of the economy of Haiti that pits a, plant, a continuing plantation model against this counter-plantation model. The counter-plantation model is really the dominant one, and it really does take over the countryside. Um, most of the early rulers just do not have the capacity to force this large population to, to, to accept the continuation of a model that they're basically refusing. Um, but so that's the beginning. I say that that's the beginning of a conflict that in a sense continues to this day of a kind of impasse between different models. Um, there's an interesting book by a guy named Michel Wolftreau, who's a Haitian scholar who taught at Hopkins and, and the University of Chicago, but he has a book on Haiti that he, that's titled State Against Nation. And he basically argues that in Haiti, the, the nation of Haitians, the kind of majority of Haitians has in a sense always been in a, in a deep conflict with the state, um, which has sort of supported elite interests, been supported by foreign interests. But you know, instead of a context where you feel like the state represents the population in some you know, more symbiotic way, it's, it's been more of this kind of like conflict. And, and in some ways you can, you can see that operating right now um, as well. So that's, that's why that concept I think is helpful. It's not just that it's a, it's, it's not just an economic concept, but it's a whole system of how you wanna organize your society. And there's basically a division or a conflict about that. Um, okay. Okay, great. Um, so what forces have shaped the relationship between the United States and Haiti over time? So a lot of that has to do again with this very beginning, right? That there's a kind of, um, and it's always been divided in the United States. I would say that there are, there's always been people in the United States who have admired Haiti or been connected to Haiti. Um, many African-Americans actually, John Brown, you know, read about the Haitian revolution and was inspired by it. Uh, Frederick Douglass, of course, many others you can think of in, in, in the United States spoke, spoke admiringly about Haiti. In fact, Frederick Douglass was ambassador to Haiti in the late 19th century, later in his, in his life. Um, so uh, um, W.B. Du Bois later, others, in fact, W.B. Du Bois actually has some Haitian ancestry, so another connection there. Um, but there was also many people who looked at Haiti and basically just thought, you know, this could happen here, right? They, they, they saw a history in which there had been an uprising of, of slaves in which many whites had been killed, um, uh, lots of violence in that process. And they were fearful of that, right? Uh, they were fearful that the model might come here. And in fact, during the move to secession in the United States, um, Haiti's invoked a lot actually by pro-secessionists in the South who sort of say, you know, if we don't, this might happen here essentially. So, um, so you have this kind of divided, but in, in some ways, at least the dominant vision of Haiti is that it's a threat, right? Um, that's basically how Jefferson thought. That's a lot, how a lot of 19th century rulers think. They think this is a dangerous. And the reason the United States actually doesn't recognize Haiti until the 1860s, until after the South secedes, um, because there are basically a number of people in Congress and elsewhere who sort of are not, could not accept having a black diplomat, right? Come to the, come to have, having essentially a black ambassador, right? Which you would have needed to have in, in the Haitian case, um, as well as they just don't want to recognize this country um, for other reasons. So that sets the tone, I think, for this longstanding 
question. And I would say that's where I, and I but I insist on the, the, the idea it's kind of divided, right? That there's these countercurrents in the US. Um, in the 20th century, of course, the US occupation becomes the major contact between the two. And the, the one point I'll just say about that occupation, again, returning to the point that people don't know that much about it, is the occupation also creates a lot of new culture in the United States. People write a lot about Haiti during that occupation. And in particular, you get a series of pretty sort of fantastical exoticist depictions of Haiti, uh, depictions of zombies. This is actually the beginning of like zombies in American culture. Zombie are, are kind of part of, they're really a kind of folklore present or a part of, of Haitian culture represents a person who's by kind of been is being controlled by someone else. Um, but those the, in the 1930s, there's a like a Broadway musical with a zombie and then that becomes films and so forth. So you get all these representations of Haitian culture in our society. Um, and that's very important because I think people don't know that often don't know that much about the history of Haiti, but people do have a lot of ideas about Haitian culture, or at least some of these figures, right? Like Vodou and and the zombie and stuff for it, right? Things that kind of are, they, they, they circulate in American popular culture. Um, and I think that's sometimes, I mean, that can be part of the problem is that we have, you know, those without the context sometimes, right? We have these kind of little, little sort of stereotypes without the larger cultural context. And that's something I think, you know, that, yeah, that's, it's useful for people to, to learn more. So they kind of understand that what the pieces they've heard and where they fit in this larger context. Um, thank you. And finally, uh, what are the reasons for the current political impasse and what might be ways forward for the country, especially in this time of recovery after the earthquake and the storms? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's been, of course, a striking few months between the assassination of the president, um, very you know, terrible event and one that's kind of shaken the country. Um, followed by this, this earthquake uh, that hit the south of Haiti. And it's important for people to understand that this sort of the southern peninsula of Haiti is um, kind of its own space. It's a place, it's very close actually to Jamaica and Cuba. It's long been almost somewhat autonomous or, or region uh, that's very difficult to get to, um, still rather difficult to get to, in fact, from, from the central areas. Um, so that has made the rescue efforts and so forth more difficult. Um, and although the, the death toll from this earthquake is much smaller than the, the 2010, it of course brings up the, the whole, the whole uh, memory of that. Um, so it, it's a kind of moment to take stock of both that uh, and two sort of different things. One is that despite the fact that there was a huge effort to respond to the Haiti earthquake, there's, there's a lot of critiques or sort of, there's a lot of, of issues with how that unfolded and exactly, um, not so much the immediate help, which of course is welcome. And is, there's a lot of that happening now, um, US and UK folks going to, for immediate rescues and medical care and those sorts of things. But then the reconstruction itself, right? And obviously reconstruction is inherently a, a longer term political and economic project. Um, and there's you know, a lot of disappointment about what ultimately happened there and a lot that we could discuss about why and how. Um, but it does mean that one thing that we're seeing right now with this earthquake, and that correlates to, I think, what many people are advocating for the political situation is that you just have these structures that for a very long time have not allowed Haitian, the Haitian population to really kind of have a say, basically, in, in the political structures, right? Um, there's just this ongoing way in which um, the political structures while you know they've they've had elections, they've been nominally democratic, just haven't been truly democratic in a deeper sense. And so, one has this kind of state structure, but it's sort of a shell. Basically, it's a group of people um, with you know their own interests. I mean, all politicians have their own interests, but in this particular case, really, that um, 
with that are that are very weak in relationship to the Haitian population, and since they don't have a lot of revenue, they don't have a lot of tax base. Um, they're they're very dependent on foreign aid. They're very dependent on foreign connections, and that just creates a situation where they don't seem that legitimate to most Haitian, the most of the Haitian population. And um, so, even after the this, the assassination, there's you know another group of people who are connected to that old regime doesn't feel like it's been hasn't been a major shift in that sense. Um, and the big question is, how does one get out of that, right? And it's a question that has been bedeviling people for quite some time. Um, I mean, I think in the abstract and in principle, we we understand that what needs to happen is is forms of participation, of democratic accountability, of you know a government that's responsive to people. Um, elections are a piece of that, but in Haiti, there's they've often had elections that aren't kind of anchored in some larger context that makes the elections effective or workable. Um, so, you know, there's a, there's a very active and vibrant civic culture and community cultures in Haiti. And in fact, you know, the response to the earthquake has seen that there's all the communities have mobilized people from Haiti have helped one another. Most of the rescues that have taken place are by communities or by local responders. And there's a general sense, I think, as well, that it's good to support those local initiatives. But of course, there's also certain things that only at the state level can certain things be accomplished you know, economically on the infrastructure and those sorts of things. So as long as you have a political impasse, a lot of the, the core needs of the Haitian people aren't going to be met, um, especially in times of crisis. So um, I do think that, you know, there isn't obviously any easy answer to this. I think there's some directions or some, there's maybe some directions that haven't been productive <laughs> that, that we shouldn't follow. And then there's the more difficult direction, which is how to kind of, um, sustain whatever institutions are doing good work. I work in Haiti with lots of different organizations that do incredible work on reforestation, environmental work, community work, et cetera. So there's lots of good people, lots of, I mean, lots of good organizations that are doing lots of interesting work, um, you know, sometimes really locally, other times in collaboration with other folks from outside. Um, so there's no shortage of ideas and energy, um, but there is a larger conundrum, I suppose, that that I hope I've tried to, to explain some some of some of the reasons for that or the roots of that. Yes, absolutely. Um, thank you so much, um, Professor Dubois. This has been very helpful to gain a broader understanding of Haiti. It's a country facing many challenges, and I'm sure our listeners will appreciate hearing the historical context that you've provided. I know that I am uh, very uh, thankful. So, so thank you so much again for your time. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. And thank you for listening. For upcoming podcasts and other lifetime learning programming, recordings, and blogs, please visit our website at alumni.virginia.edu backslash learn. We're excited to announce that you can also find this podcast and other recordings on Spotify. Just search for the UVA Lifetime Learning Channel. So thanks again, and we look forward to you taking part in future lifetime learning programs. Mm-hmm.